How's that? Is that better? All right. I can be really loud. <laughs> um, we were, uh, a few of us went down to a uh, uh, pastor's conference, actually uh, went to Atlanta. Uh, Calvary Chapel has different ones. Um, and so we're, the gist of it, uh, looking for one where we felt like we fed in. Uh, even though I was born and raised in SoCal, I just, to be honest, I don't like going there anymore. <laughs> and uh, so we went to the Atlanta one. Uh, it was good. We really enjoyed the conference. It was weird. Our plane got diverted to Salt Lake City. Uh, so we are supposed to get to Atlanta at 9.45 uh, Eastern time on Saturday. Uh, we got there at 3.30 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, yeah, got to our Airbnb about 4.30 in the morning, and so it was an adventure, to say the least. Uh, the, yeah, anyway, there's a crazy man on the plane, so we got diverted uh, to, to land there. But uh, I, asked, I even asked the pilot afterwards, I'm like, have you ever, how many times have you, you know, had to do that? And, he, and he's like, I've been flying for 20 years, I've never had to do that. And I was like, hmm, of course. So anyway, we're thankful, we're here, encouraged, and whatnot, so... Um, just to throw this out there, uh, if you, you know, in your morning times and you're praying, uh, we're going to be looking at the possibility. So there's a thing called Calvary Chapel Institute. And what it is, is essentially it's a 10 month uh, Bible training course and, and ministry, school ministry, if you want to call it that. And um, they do uh, interns. And so uh, you can go down there and essentially make a sales pitch, as it were, uh, about if an intern's coming to the church. And so it's something we've been thinking about doing. I talked to the uh, Calvary Institute folks while we were down there. And so, yeah, if you think about it, pray about it. The will of the Lord be done. That is all. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm in the wrong book. Briefly, right, what are we talking about in 1 Corinthians? We're talking about living a life through the Spirit of God and a new nature or living a life according to the old nature. The sinful nature, the nature we inherited from Adam. The sinful nature is uh, angry, is full of anxiety. It's, it's that. It's sinful. Sin. Missing the mark of God. God says, this is what I want for you, and this is my requirement. And sin is missing that and not doing that. So out of the sin nature is where comes our angst. It comes our thanklessness. It comes our complaining. That's where all of that comes from. The nature we inherited from Adam. And now Paul is writing to Corinth where, generally speaking, we're not talking about outliers, but in general, what was occurring there were people who were walking uh, very extrovertedly in the flesh. They were walking in that old nature. They were being demanding. They're suing. Uh, in chapter 5, we'll talk about weird sexual practices that were going on. All this stuff that's going bad, right? And so in, in last week, when we looked at chapter 4, uh, Paul is saying, well, I should say in two, or a few weeks ago, uh, in chapter 3, Paul's addressing what God's servants, who they are, uh, not in individual names, but what makes a person one of God's servants. And then, he's, and then in chapter 4, he's going on to talk about how we ought to think about God's servants. In this case, it was uh, Peter and Apollos and Paul, and we talk about that in great detail. We won't rehash that. And then two weeks ago, when I was here, we, re, we looked at chapter 4, where he says, hey, this is how you ought to think about us. He says, we're just stewards. Right? He says, all we are are we're people that God has commissioned to explain to other people about the mysteries of God. And remember, we talked about the mysteries of God because there is something mysterious. We all like national treasure and the Goonies. There's something very exciting about hidden treasure and hidden knowledge and Gnosticism. And that idea has been going on since the day Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, that there's some sort of secret hidden knowledge and it's found in Judaism or it's found in Hebrew or it's, if we all say Yeshua, that makes us more holy or all these different things, right, that kind of come up or secret knowledge in the, the book of Enoch or secret knowledge in the gospel according to Mary, these extra biblical books or whatever. And if I could just find it, then I would really know. But we looked, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, these are the mysteries of God. It's the gospel. It's Christ died and rose again from the dead. That's the, the knowledge that has been revealed through Christ, and now is being communicated through the apostles and through every person who's looking to communicate God's heart, right? So we don't have to get into numerology. We don't have to say, oh, on the seventh day, and this, the secret knowledge is Christ. Is that, can that stuff be interesting? Sure, it can be interesting. But that's not what, you know, it doesn't save souls. The gospel 
save souls. So he says that that's what we are. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he says that uh, when you're looking at God's uh, servants, um, when you're looking at people that are sharing, that they should be faithful in sharing those things, that they should be faithful in what God has called them to. Then Paul is going to talk about the fact that he himself doesn't judge his own conscience, and we're not here to judge other ministries. He doesn't say other ministries. He says other servants. His point is, you don't look at Apollos and say, well, I think Apollos is unfaithful, or he should do this, or he should do that, or he's doing this wrong, because Apollos is doing Apollos' ministry. Now, there may be a need for correction, and Apollos is an example of that too. Because if you remember, Apollos, for a long time in the early church, he's preaching what? Only the baptism of John, because that's all he knows. And so it's Priscilla and Aquila who come along and say, well, this is Jesus. He's raised from the dead and, and, you know, all this. And so then he begins to preach more along the death and resurrection of Christ, right? So Apollos, he had a place where there was instruction, and, and, but that's, that's different than just saying, well, I don't like your ministry or your ministry should be different or, or something like that. There's going to be people in our lives that have ministries that we may not agree with, we may be part of. And, and if, it's not, if it's not overtly biblically wrong, then we don't really have a place to measure that. And that's what Paul is saying there in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, hey, if a person is ministering the gospel, the mysteries of God, then that's, hey, we're good. Like, we don't need to really go beyond that. Uh, and then he's going to go on and say, ultimately, every one of us are going to stand uh, before God, and we're going to give a report about what our life was like and how our ministry was. So then in uh, verse uh, 8, he then begins to speak to the Corinthians themselves. So this is where we'll pick up, because now he's actually addressing the Corinthians in, in essentially kind of an ironic or almost a sarcastic way. But you'll, you'll see his heart here. So in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When we reviled, or when we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So Paul's writing to them, because remember, what is going on in the Corinthian church? Well, like I said in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the fact that they boast, uh, that they boast in some of the sin that's going on in their gathering. In chapter 5, in this case, there's a man who's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the whole church knows about it. It's an open relationship. Everybody's familiar with it. And so what's happening at Corinth is the leadership is just rejoicing in how open-minded they are. They're just saying, hey, you know, this is how gracious we are, how much, how much we care about it. And Paul, in the first part there, he says, your boasting is not good. Instead, you should mourn that. There should be a mourning over that kind of sin. He says not even the, the uh, it was actually against Roman law to do that. Uh, you can kind of cite some old uh, history books. It's kind of cool that it, it was, you, you, you could go to prison in Rome if, or be flogged if you were doing that, if you had a relationship with your stepmother. So he makes the point, he says, not even heathens involve themselves in the kind of sexual immorality that you're allowing and boasting in, in your church. So he's, he's going through here, and he's making these points. You guys have all these problems. You're suing each other. You won't take the wrong. You won't humble yourselves before each other. You're making factions between God's servants with each other. So they have all this destructive, sinful behavior that's tearing down their gathering. And now Paul is addressing them, and he's saying how they think. He's, he's, he's telling them what they think of themselves. And he says, he says there in verse 8, he says, already you have all you want. So the Corinthians were saying, we're full. We're golden. We have it all. We're squared away. Our church is, is great. It's perfect the way it is. That's what they're saying. So he's ironically saying and agreeing with them in an ironic way. And he says, comparing the two lives, he says, you guys have, you say you have everything that you want. And he goes, but already that you have become rich. 
Without us, you become kings. So he, he goes further with that. And he, says, he says, you're doing all this without us. Now, we know that there were false teachers at Corinth, and they were there for years. Now, remember, Paul started the, the, the church at Corinth. He was there for 18 months, and then he goes on. And after that, false teachers crept in, and they had all sorts of different things that they were sharing, and, and then we can see kind of the, the, gist, the gist of where it went. So this whole time up until now, Paul, again, has been talking about Living according to the old nature, the flesh, the old man, the sinful nature, those are all synonyms in the Bible, versus living in the, the new man in Christ, the new nature, the power of the Spirit, and those are, in a sense, also synonyms in the Bible. And so he's making this comparison. He's saying, you guys are living in the flesh, and yet your testimony about what you are like and what your church is like, in general, is that you reign. You, you have authority in the God's kingdom. You're, you're, you're kings, that you're rich, that you have every spiritual rich, that you're doing everything right, that you have all this knowledge and authority and riches. And the crazy thing about sin, it's so often, that's what it does to us, doesn't it? It deceives us. It makes us think that we have, that everything's okay. It makes us think that we're enjoying ourselves. It makes us think that we're rich and we, we, the, the pride that can be involved in, in all these things. So that's what's happening there in Corinth. So Paul's now making a comparison and he says, you, you say that you did this without us, that, that you didn't even need us to do it. Well, that might seem a little pompous, except he started the church, right? He started the church. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. He's a faithful person from all accounts, biblically and extra-biblically, that we have about Paul. Extra-biblically being uh, those that would write about Paul that either knew him personally or knew someone who knew him personally, uh, you know, within like, 100 years after him. And so he, he, he's saying, you guys are living this lifestyle, and, and, and you're saying that you are in this amazing godly position, and you're saying that you're doing it, and you've done it without us, or possibly even in spite of us. And this, it's, it's the deceitfulness of sin. We'll talk more about that. He says, verse 9, uh, or sorry, he says, and he says uh, verse 8, without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. And so Paul says, I wish you did have that kind of gathering. I wish that you were reigning with Christ in, in a sense that you were walking in the authority of the Spirit, that you were walking with God and you were sharing those things with people around you. He says, I, I wish that you were doing that. I wish that it was your, what your life was like. He says, because if it was, then we would be doing that with you. We'd be right alongside of you. We'd be rejoicing with you. We would reign with you. There'd be that camaraderie of, of, of the, uh, the church, that camaraderie of serving Christ together, right? But they're living two separate lives. One is by the flesh and one is by the spirit. Verse 9, he says this, For I think God has exalted, or excuse me, exhibited us apostles as last of all. So the apostles, and what he's about to go into, now he's going to go into living the crucified life. There's lots of books have been written about it. The Bible talks about it. Whether you want to call it living the crucified life, if you want to call it living in the new man of Christ, if you want to call it denying yourself, if you want to call it walking in the spirit, walking with the Lord, uh, relationship with God, these are all terms for the same thing. And it's the idea, for example, from uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. It's the idea that me as a believer... As an autonomous human being, I'm also, at the same time, yielding to, responding to, and adhering to the tenets of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant, that I'm walking with God, I'm denying myself. Jesus put it this way, take up your cross daily and follow after me, right? That, that idea that if you're from Christian circles, you're probably very familiar with that. It's the idea that when Jesus took up his cross, he was walking to his own death in complete innocence, right? So that's what Jesus was doing. And then ultimately, him going to the cross and being crucified on our behalf was a fulfillment of all the prophecies and of all the old covenant feasts and everything, and, and a look to uh, how sin would finally be forgiven. That in, at the cross of Christ, that his blood was shed, and that through that shedding of his blood, through that judgment upon him, that we would be able to live. And so when, when Christ turns back to us and says, I also call you or anybody who would come after me and be my disciple, as he says, to live that same life. Now, obviously, we're not innocent, right? Obviously, we've sinned and we need that blood. But once we 
uh, if you will, appropriate or accept the free gift of the blood of Christ in exchange for my sin, that his blood cleanses me, once we do that, we're now called to a life that lives, uh, to, to live a life as Christ lived. In the sense that we too are called as believers for the sake of God's kingdom, not for the sake of our salvation. Salvation was in Christ. But for the sake of being involved in and building up and being a blessing in God's kingdom, we're called to that same life. It means when, and he's going to go through a list here and tell us what it means, and, and we could talk more about it. He says, we're like men, they're exhibited. He says, we're exhibited as, as apostles as last of all. We don't insist on things. He says, as an, as an apostle, he says, I'm exhibited as last of all. In Corinth, what's happening? Everybody's trying to be preeminent. There, later on in the book, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts because people are using spiritual gifts, gifts that God has given them to bring attention to themselves and talk about how great they are. And so he, they're, they're trying to make themselves preeminent in that. People are suing each other. And Paul says, why don't you just be wronged instead? Just, just let your money go. Let your stuff go. Be wronged instead. Like every grain, let's be honest, every grain inside of us is like, oh, no, no, no. Justice recompense. And yet Paul actually writes and says to the Corinthians, you guys are going so far, you're taking each other to Roman courts. You're making yourself preeminent over others. And for what? He says money. Because that's a a complete reversal of the values of the kingdom. And so he's he's going on there. He's saying, we, we, as apostles, we're last of all. We don't don't get to insist on anything. And I'll tell you, if you're going to be a servant of God, if you're going to minister to people, you get to be last of all. You know why? Because people can say whatever they want. But if you reply in an ill manner, they'll walk away and they'll, they'll scorn you for miles around. Isn't that what we see today? You know, every once in a while on my Facebook feed, I get little blurbs from like Charisma News or something like that. And the, 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 the titles oftentimes will be like, this pastor did this, or this person did this, or there's this accusation, or this is going on. Or, or sometimes when people have a wrong done to them and they're, they're talking to other people, it happens on a local level, on a national level, individual level, where something goes wrong and then people just tear in and just destroy and, and have these, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of these public accusations and all this. The funny thing is when Jesus ministered to people, People said all sorts of ignorant and stupid things to Jesus, didn't they? They tried to trick him. You know, here's a, should you pay taxes or you should not pay taxes? Why did they ask him that? Because if he says yes, that they should pay taxes, then they have accusation because they was in the, the, the law. They should not be dominated by anybody. They should not be yielded to Rome. So if he were to say to them, yes, you should pay taxes to Rome, what he's saying is, I, I put my stamp of approval on Roman rule over my people. But if he says, no, you should not pay taxes, now he's in danger of being executed by Caesar or by Pilate because now he's risen up against the Roman government and spoken against them. So they try to trick him. They're, they're trying to, all these different things that people did. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Calmly and with wisdom, with kindness, with forgiveness. The rich young ruler who comes to him and he says, you know what, here's what you really need. The reason you haven't found life, you're not experiencing real life, is because you are holding on to your money. So here's what you need, rich young ruler. You need to sell everything you have and you need to follow me. And it says that he went away. And it says that Jesus was grieved. It doesn't say Jesus was offended. That Jesus said, oh, yeah, you deserve it. That's right. I knew you weren't legit. Run along now, rich young ruler. Right? No, he was kind. He was gentle. The only people that you see Jesus with any kind of uh, anger, and, and typically it says he was grieved, and then he became angry, is religious people or people that stop other people from coming to him. The word anger is used when the the disciples stopped the children from coming to him and made him angry. The word anger is used in Mark 3 where the man with the withered hand and he's debating with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are trying to manipulate the situation to use that handicapped man to try to pin Jesus for working on the Sabbath to kill him. That's the only place they used anger. See, being last of all, being least, 
is how you win people. None of us in this room are won by being domineered, are we? None of us in this room respond well that when someone tells us how it's going to be and what we're going to do and then we're going to like it, do we? So Paul says in his ministry, he says, we're, we're exhibited as being least of all. We don't insist on things. He goes on there and he says this, we're like men sentenced to death in their hearts. They were always willing to go to death. They were always willing to, to lay down their lives. They were always willing in a physical way to be sentenced for death for the sake of the gospel because the gospels realistically, I mean, in a spiritual sense, Obviously, we're thankful for soldiers. We're thankful for wars that have been fought to preserve the innocents. We're thankful all the way back to the Crusades. Just as a side note, I really encourage you to read about the Crusades because I know that they always get brought up in schools and they get brought up. It's, it's, like, the, it's like this, people think it's this ace in the hole to like kind of wreck Christians. Like, oh, what about the Crusades? Well, first of all, the Crusades were actually a response because Muslims had made it so far north, they're almost to Italy or in Italy. And they were killing Christians everywhere they went. And so the, the Crusades occurred because there was a plea by Christians back to like the Knight Templar and so forth and these other organizations, which we're not saying they were all perfect. But what they, when the Crusades came marching, it was to save women from being raped and children from being killed and men from being slaughtered. That's what the Crusades are about. So next time somebody wants to get uppity with you and just be like, wow, the Crusades, the Christians are terrible. No, we don't endorse everything that went on. We're not like, yeah, it was so great when they grabbed Muslims and tortured them. We're not. But the fact that they were willing to march and shed their own blood to stop the, the bloodshed of Christians, we rejoice in that, right? That's not a bad thing. But all that to be said, the, the, the highest calling, the, the highest thing to lay down our life for in a, in a daily spiritual sense, in a willful sense, in an emotional sense, and also a physical sense, the highest calling is for his kingdom for God's kingdom, being involved with, with people, seeing the gospel go forward. He goes on there and he says that we've sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, and we don't have time to develop it. But think about that. The, the apostles, the servants of God, uh, not just apostles, you know, Apollos was not a big A apostle, right? He was not one of the twelve. But so we're talking about people that are, that are serving Christ here. Ultimately, he says that even a spectacle to angels Think about that, that God is explaining and showing his plan. And it's not the only time that this happens. God is showing and explaining his plan to heaven through human beings, through people that, that are serving God, people that are propagating the, the kingdom, involving themselves in the kingdom. God has an incredible life to us. We can read these things and we can say they're negative and we could say we could never do that. We could say this, this is gibberish. Are you kidding me? We could say all sorts of things. But the bottom line is this. The person that lays down their life in every sense of the word for the kingdom of God is a person who's going to be the most joyful, the most encouraged, the most uh, carefree and ultimately rewarded person in the kingdom. It's an incredible life to lay down one's life. It's a wonderful life to not say everything that comes into your mind. It's a wonderful life to humble ourselves and see people be saved. It's an it's a incredible life to humble ourselves when people are acting poorly. It's, an, it's, a, it's a great life. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, you guys are deceived. You think you reign. You think you're rich. You think you're squared away. And he says, but actually, it's absolutely the opposite because this life that you look at us, in this context, Apollos and Peter and Paul, he says, you look at us and you, you, you despise us. You think we're ridiculous. But he says, we're actually living the life that God has intended. He goes on there in verse 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Remember, he's speaking ironically. Is he a fool? Probably not. You know, is, is Apollos a fool? I mean, all of us deal with doing foolish things. I'm not. But no, the. He's saying, you guys look at us, and you, you call us fools. Uh, people that, that, that know wrong and still do it. People that are doing the wrong thing. People that are, you, you know how we use the word fool. That guy's a fool. What are we saying? We're saying, this guy's just continually hurting himself for no reason. He's continually doing things that make no sense, and, and he keeps on doing it, right? He says, you guys, he, he tells the Corinthians, you guys think that we're foolish for the way that we live our lives, he says, we're fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. Obviously, they were not. 
We are weak, but you are strong. Another accusation of the carnal Christian. You're so weak. Paul, you're so weak. In this case, he was a, wasn't, they didn't esteem him to be a great orator, a great teacher. Maybe they thought he wasn't strong enough to make tents fast enough because that's what he did on the side. I don't know. But he says that you're weak. But, but their estimation of themselves is that they were strong. Isn't that how the world works now? You know, one of the things I've contemplated a lot is just from working on an ambulance, we, you, you transport a lot of uh, people that, that use drugs. And, and I have no condemnation for that. I understand the, the crime it reaps. I, I don't endorse it. But it is what it is. But you know what the funny, the, one of the things that's always baffled me in kind of the new pot culture that's kind of come up in, 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 um, in the U.S., where like, you know, pot leaf tattoos and pot leaf shirts and pot leaf necklaces and pot leaf headbands and pot leaf shirts and pot leaf pants. It's like this whole culture celebrating weed, right? And it, this is what fascinates me about it. You're telling me, and this is, I don't, I don't think this is pompous. I've asked the Lord to search my heart on it. You're telling me that I'm weak because I don't want to self-medicate. But your life sucks so bad that you have to smoke morning, noon, and night. And that makes you strong. That's interesting to me. So you have a life that you can't deal with. And I don't condemn them for having a life they can't deal with because a lot of people go through a lot of terrible things. And I understand why people self-medicate. But the idea that, that, that the gospel is somehow weak and that drug usage is somehow strong is ridiculous. It's a crazy idea. The fact that that we could go, or that many of us are able to go to a party and don't have to get inebriated, don't have to smoke weed, don't have to hit the meth pipe. You ever seen someone smoke meth? It's wild. They usually vomit. When you go into drug houses and stuff like that, you'll have four or five people that are sitting around and they all have their pipes and their rock and sometimes they pass it, sometimes they don't. I've been in those houses, not smoking meth, but for the sake of the ambulance. And there's a vomit bucket in the middle of them because you almost everybody immediately starts vomiting as soon as they hit the pipe, right? And so they hit it and they, they get euphoric and this into this bucket. It's just a communal vomit bucket, right? But they look at they look at us and they go, "You guys are so weak with your Jesus." And again, this I'm not trying to be punitive or rude or judgmental. It's just how sin works in our hearts. We think. Oh, I'm the strong one. I'm this and I'm that. And that's what he's telling the, flip, the, the Corinthians. He says, you guys accuse us of being weak, but that you guys are strong. And he says, that's not the strength. You, you don't have real strength. It's why you're trying to be preeminent. It's why you're dominating others. It's why you're living in anxiety and fear. It's not strength. It's the gospel that gives strength, Paul would say. He's going to go on. He says, you are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted, beaten, and homeless. Homeless is interesting. It's, it's, it's the word unsettled. We have no place to settle, he says. And so he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, look, the, your attitude is that you're strong, that you're honorable, you're, you're, you're respectable. And he goes, but you know, for us, we live a life oftentimes where you know, we don't have that honor from human beings. Sometimes we go without. He says, we hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, and we, we feel unsettled. That's the worst feeling in the world, isn't it? Isn't it the worst? One of the worst, I mean, I guess being tortured to death would probably be up there, but I mean, like, just for a general population, to feel like you don't have a place, to feel like you have no place to be, nobody wants you there, you don't really have a home, or to be in your home and not have peace in your home, that's one of the worst human experiences, I think. And so Paul says, you know, sometimes as servants of Christ in this world, we don't have a place to call our home. Jesus said it this way. He says, foxes have holes. And he says, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And yet he's the most joyful man that ever lived. So there's, there's something that Paul's communicating here, again, through irony to the Corinthians, saying, look, you, you think you have all this, but we're the ones that even though we physically experience these things, we are the ones that have the blessed life. We're the ones that, that uh, uh, are able to build this kingdom. Uh, verse 12, we are, uh, excuse me, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Literally, the refuse of all things, that which people scrape off their shoes. And he says, you know what, the you Corinthians, you look at us like this because we live this life of, of being okay with God's will in our life. Now, here's, here's the thing. In this time and in this age, most people are impoverished, right? So they're not in Rome. They're in Corinth. Corinth, I can't remember. I researched it once. I want to say Corinth is like 40,000 people at this time. Rome is one million, okay? In Rome, and at this time, in these years, they had um, essentially a uh, subsidized corn. So in Rome, if you were under a certain poverty line, you could go and you could get corn from the government, and then you would take it to a baker. And bakers were actually very rich. Some of the biggest tombs that they still have in Rome are from bakers. Isn't that wild? There's actually one on the, one of the main roads into Rome. There's this huge tomb to a baker, and it's actually shaped like a bunch of ovens and stuff like that. It's, it's really funny. You can see pictures of it. Um, but because everybody in Rome that got that, subs, that uh, subsistence corn, the, the, uh, the corn that they got from the government, would have to bring it to a baker because you could not bake in There was no room. If you were poor, it's very interesting. If you were poor, you lived in like a fifth, five-story apartment building, which, yeah, they had five-story apartment buildings in Rome in, in biblical times. And the poorest people lived on top because there's no cooking and no potties. So you took your corn, and with what little money you made, you took it to a baker, and that baker would cook your piece of corn bread for the day. That's what you got. All I'm trying to point out is this. The vast majority of the world is in poverty at this time. Does that make sense? So this can be maybe a little unrelatable for us because we live a lot better. Uh, in fact, if you make $40,000 a year, you make more than like 92, 93% of the world. But so... For Paul to live and a lot of these people, men and women, to live a life of just being on the road and serving Jesus, it meant extreme poverty. And they, they subsided on the gifts that people gave them. That's, that's how they work. So that might be a little bit difficult for us to identify here. Identify with, I should say, here. So what Paul is not saying is that if you have money, you're a bad person. He's not saying that if, you're, if you've retired well, you're a bad person. If you're saving for retirement, you're a bad person, or it's, it's somehow anti-gospel. He's not saying that. Money is not evil. The love of money is, right? The love of money is what stems, much evil stems from the love of money. Having money is not evil. So he's not saying that. He's just saying that the Corinthians were looking at them because of the way they lived their lives, and they were making these judgments upon them. But Paul is saying we're actually living the life that God has called us to live. So is he calling us to poverty? No. He's calling us to priority. Does that make sense? He's calling us to prioritize the kingdom of God, regardless of what it costs us. And then he's saying that if you do this, you'll live the life that is the, God, the best life that God has for you, that God's called you to. That's what he's saying. To always prioritize the life of Christ. <laughs> Paul in Philippians chapter 4 would say this, that he's learned to live both in need, to be abased, and to abound. That's Philippians 4.10 through 12. And he says he's learned to have nothing, he's learned to have a lot. And he says he's able to do this through Christ who strengthens him. That idea that God supernaturally strengthens us. Because the thought of going without is very scary, right? It is. If, if, if going without didn't scare us, why would we care about the economy? <laughs> we would have like 70% less reason to turn the news on, right? The fact is it does affect us. And, and, and it affects us, affects us more and more if you have children or you have dependents or these things, right? Like how can I provide for them? I don't want to see my kids go hungry. I, I don't want to go through that. But the, the, the case that Paul is making in Philippians and a tad here and other places is this, that those of us who do decide, you know what, I'll follow Christ. And there may be times that I have to make decisions that cost me to follow Christ. But Paul is saying that there's that strength, that supernatural strength and power that comes through the Holy Spirit that God's given us to be able to go without and still find contentment. Because all of a sudden, our priority is the kingdom 
And if the kingdom, if God's kingdom is being built, that kingdom of joy, that kingdom of peace in my heart and in others, then I can find my, my, my peace and my rest in that and what Jesus is doing. We'll stop there. You know, there was a, there was a, a good warning in Revelation 3. There's a church, uh, you might be familiar with it, called Laodicea. And um, essentially, Laodicea had kind of fallen into this place of just kind of mediocrity, right? And, you, and I think most, if you've been around the Bible for very long, most people are familiar with what Jesus says, right? Because he says, you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And he goes on to say, you should have asked to buy from me. You should have asked to buy white clothes from me, clean clothes, righteousness. You should have asked to buy eye salve from me, which is interesting because uh, there was a, actually an, a kind of an optometry school in Laodicea. There, there was a, literally a, a Roman school for doctors to learn how to try to treat eye injuries. Obviously very primitive, but they had it. And one of the boasts of Laodicea was a salve that actually had been adopted from the Greeks like 800 years prior or something like that. And, and Laodicea used to make this salve. And, it, and, and the, the Roman army bought this salve uh, for eyes and eye injuries in bulk from Laodicea. And so when Jesus writes to them, he says, you should be buying eye salve from me. What he's saying is you guys got rich. That's why Laodicea, actually Laodicea was completely destroyed. But it, by an earthquake, but it was so rich that when the Roman government tried to give them money to, uh, to rebuild their, their, their town, out of pride and out of gaining, garnering favor from Caesar, they rejected all the Roman money. The council rejected all the Roman money and rebuilt their city with their own money. And that money was from the south, in great part. Not solely, but in great part. And so when Jesus writes to Laodicea and he says, you should have bought salve from me. He's saying the same thing that he did to the Corinthians. You think you have it because you have this optometry. The hot and cold, I'm not trying to be a jerk. It has nothing to do with being fervent for Jesus or being ice so he can break you. That's cute, but it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that Laodicea was so rich that they built two aqueducts. One from Hierapolis, which was like, I don't know, six miles away, and one from Colossae, which was like three miles away. And Hierapolis had a hot spring, and Colossae had a cold spring. And what they wanted is, is Laodicea wanted, this is all history, Laodicea wanted cold water, and they wanted hot water. They wanted to be able to bring that into their city, but they didn't calculate it right. And so what happened was they got two aqueducts of lukewarm water. And so they, they, it was neither refreshing, it was neither therapeutic, they couldn't use the water for anything. It was just the same water they already had. And so when Jesus says, I wish that you were hot or cold, he's referencing their failures as a city. Not even as a church per se, but as a city with aqueducts. And he says, just like what you built and what you did is worthless, he says, so also you, Laodicean church, you're lukewarm. And so for my kingdom, you're worthless. So there's these warnings, and instead it was, hey, come to me and buy self, Jesus would say. Come to me and buy your clothing. Come to me and find real life, find healing, right? So everything Laodicea thought they had right is Jesus saying, you don't. And you become lukewarm, and you need to come to me. So what's our application? That's our application. We need Christ. If there's something that rears up inside of us and says, I don't want a hard life, which that's me, I'll be honest, like, I want an easy life. I want to just like pastor for a while, somehow become independently wealthy from that, and then retire. <laughs> that's my plan. No, it's not my plan. But you know, I don't have a plan, and that's the honest truth. We're just kind of living life. But the point is that I think all of us want an easy life because we think an easy life is what will be gratifying and what will be comforting. But the reality is easy lives are not gratifying. But serving Christ, knowing the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, that's where we find the, the, the true fulfillment, the true life. And it's weird because sometimes it just takes getting off the couch and moving forward. And in this case with Laodicea or with Corinth, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's just taking that first baby step saying, Lord, 
I need you in my life, not just for salvation, but I, I need to know the power of your spirit. I need to know you working. I need to know your will, where, where I can be part of this life, where I can be contributing to God's kingdom, whether it's in the church or out of the church or both in my home, you know, all the different responsibilities we have. And so this, this invitation that we have from the scripture today is an invitation to life. It's an invitation to, to, to joy and to peace, not in an absence of conflict or an absence of difficulty, but in the midst of it, which is significantly more valuable. It's more valuable to know that through the help and the power of the Spirit, I can weather any storm. It's, it's a way more encouraging. It's way more confidence-building than to just hope not to have a storm, right? And so I encourage you, God's got great things for you. He's got great things for each one of us. It may be riches. It may be poverty. It is what it is. But at the end of the day, those who are willing to say, yes, God, are going to be those that live the most fulfilling and, and contribute to God's kingdom and, and get to be a part uh, of something fantastic on the earth and in heaven. Uh, so the Lord bless you guys. And I hope you have a good week. And I hope you don't get ran over by the hot rods. <laughs> is it just me or is this the craziest rod run we've had in like years? Yeah. I can tell I'm getting old now because I'm like, oh, stinking hot rodders. You know, when I was a young buck, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Now I'm like, mm, I'm going to call the sheriff. <laughs> bah humbug. Anyway, Father, thank you for being so kind to us. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity to consider you and to look into your word, to worship you. Lord, you've been nothing but kind and merciful to us. Lord, we acknowledge that every good gift truly has come from you. Lord, you've always taken care of us. You've always been faithful. Lord, you've always loved us and you've treated us well. And we appreciate that. Lord, we pray as we go our way that you would help us to identify places in our own hearts where we're not willing to yield to you. And we pray, Lord, that by your goodness, you would bring us to repentance. We pray, Lord, that as David prayed, will you please restore unto us, if, if for those of us that lack it, would you restore unto us the joy of your salvation? And Lord, would you cause us to be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit, to see the, the lost for who they are, people that need you, to see difficulty for what it is, opportunity to trust you. And Lord, that you would fill us and you'd be all, all of our all. You'd be everything to us. And Lord, we just appreciate you. Probably not as much as we should, but we do. And you're very kind. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.